Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Tiger Gao. My guest today is someone of great personal significance to me. He is my thesis advisor and one of the most important mentors in my student career. Atif Mian is the John H. Laporte Jr. Class of 1967 Professor of Economics, Public Policy, and finance at Princeton University. And he's also the director of the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance, which has graciously supported this podcast uh, since day one. Professor Mian studies the connections between finance and the macroeconomy. And his book, House of Debt, which I have here, uh, became an instant international bestseller when, I was when it was published in 2014 and kicked off a critical line of research related to debt forgiveness and risk sharing mechanisms, which we will talk about later in this interview. He is the first person of Pakistani origin to rank among the top 25 young economists of the world by the IMF. So Professor Mian, thank you so much uh, for being here today with me. After all those years of doing this podcast, I finally have you on my show. So this is all coming together. It's great. <laughs> Thanks, Tiger. It's it's great to be uh, finally on your show. You know, I mean, I'm I'm so proud of everything you've you've done, and especially this uh, policy punchline um, initiative that you started and now will be uh, you know followed through by other uh, generation of Princeton students. So really terrific to be finally on uh, on on your show. Thanks very much. I, I think we should we have so much to talk about today because I feel like uh, over the past two three years at, when I was at Princeton. Uh, I've constantly been at the intersection of finance, policy, macroeconomy, which is the sweet spot where your line of research sits. So uh, every day I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm intersecting with some part of your research in some way. So maybe to, to start us off, just to give our listeners some overview, very broad overview. Who, who is Atif Mian? Uh, how did you get to the United States? And how did you start a, a career in economics? And what do you research? So a very broad question. <laughs> Well, um, I'm from Pakistan. I grew up in Pakistan, did my schooling there. And I was just extremely fortunate that uh, when I was finishing my high school, um, I applied to a few colleges in the US and only one college accepted me, but that was the right college. So I came to MIT as an uh, undergraduate wanting to do engineering. I was a science, math, science student. And so I started doing um, um, computer science, went into mathematics, really loved uh, mathematics. But one thing that always interested me early on uh, were kind of big social questions, uh, especially coming from Pakistan. The one obvious thing was very poor country, nothing seems to kind of work properly. And then you look at a country like the US, much richer, much better systems and so on. And a natural question that comes in the mind of a, a kid like myself uh, is, you know, why are these two countries so different? So I was always interested in those social questions. However, I was kind of a math nerd kind of a student. So, you know, it's, I, I had no idea how to translate those questions into anything formal, uh, or, or I actually did not even know that, you know, the field of economics exists uh, in, in that particular sense. So that's, it just tells you how uh, illiterate I was at some level. But when I came, when I, you know, when I started taking classes, I, 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 that's when I got exposed to economics. And what I really liked about that was that it combined the two interests of mine. As I've mentioned, I was kind of a science math student, uh, but the questions were all exactly the kind of questions that I was personally very interested 
uh, in uh, questions of social science at the end of the day. Why are some countries poor and others not? And, and, and why some societies seem to sort of function better than others? Um, so that really excited me. Uh, by the time I figured that out, it was kind of towards the end of my undergrad uh, sort of life at MIT. So I did graduate with math and computer science, but um, I had taken a few economics courses and I thought, you know, why not apply for PhD in economics? Because I had the, the the math background. And so that's, that's, that's what happened. So then I started my um, graduate uh, life and uh, Initially, I was interested in development economics, again, given being from Pakistan and so on. Um, but um, over time, I really became fascinated with, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, the intersection of uh, macro and, and, and finance. Um, and, and, and let me just say you know, very, very briefly why I find that very, very interesting. Um, macro, at the end of the day, is about understanding how we are all connected in an economy, which I like to think of it as an e ecosystem, right? So like, you know, your supply is my demand and vice versa, right? We are all connected in this web of financial and economic transactions. And we often don't think like that. I mean, you don't need to think like that if you, for example, have a nine to five job and so on. But what's really happening behind the firm paying you and, you know, and the consequences of your purchasing decisions and whether you buy a house or not and things like that, it really has implications for everyone else. That's what I mean by we are all connected. And understanding that ecosystem is just fascinating, right? And so once I kind of got a flavor of that, it really, um, it, it really in a way brought to surface for me the power of studying economics because, you know, those connections can sometimes or often I would say lead you to, to surprising conclusions or insights that you wouldn't otherwise have if you just, for example, you know, read the newspaper and things like that. Um, so you really need to understand the collective uh, consequences of you know, our individual actions and transactions and that's what macroeconomics does. So that's number one. Number two, the other thing that really, um, excited me was that in order to understand that ecosystem, which is really the system or the economy that we live in, um, it's really important to understand distributions. And so it really matters who has how much um, in terms of what the overall shape of this ecosystem looks like. And that's the other insight that I really like that comes out of economics quite naturally, which is that this ecosystem that I'm talking about, the health of this ecosystem requires a certain level of balance, which by the way, is a very general concept. So for example, if you were to study planets, you'll also recognize they need certain balance of forces to remain in the orbits that they are in. Similarly to maintain life properly on earth, we know for example, the, you know, the, the, the regulatory mechanism of homeostasis, of how temperature is regulated, for example. That sense of balance is extremely important in all systems to survive and evolve uh, in a healthy manner. And exactly the same is true about economic systems as well. And so um, that sense of balance is very important. And that's why distributions are very important. So I got very interested in that idea as well, 
you really have two challenges that you want to grow, develop, and at the same time, you want to do it in a way that you maintain that balance. Um, and what I've realized over time is that when that does not happen, when the balance is not maintained or achieved properly, you see the implications of that in, among other things, financial markets. Um, so there is actually a close connection with a sense of imbalance and what happens in financial markets. And debt, for example, is one very important consequence of those imbalances. And so if someone does not have as much as they want, for example, you know, they're going to try to compensate for that by borrowing, and that is going to lead to more debt in the economy. Similarly, if someone has more than they can really spend, they will try to lend it out to others. So again, you'll have more debt in the economy, more credit in the economy. You might say that's fine, and sometimes it is fine. But what I'm trying to say is that there are these natural connections between the macroeconomy and the financial market or the finance side. And those linkages, they, they, they really, you know, as I studied more, it's like, you know, I can't think of anything else that, you know, it's because there's just so much to do, so much to think about. And so that, you know, it, it's a little bit of a longer answer to your question, but that's really my journey in, 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 in a few words of how I ended up thinking about the macroeconomy and financial markets. You talked about that there's tremendous value in economics because it is studying from the point of view from the collective, not from the individual. And even in class, you kept kept telling us, you know, the superpower of economists, which is, you know, the economy is going to suffer if you don't come in. And but if you come in, you can just push a few buttons and a lot of times fix the problem and dramatically improve the well-beings by rebalancing the, the imbalanced economy, uh, taxation or through some other regula regulations and, and so on. So which we, we should get into in, in, in a bit. But since, since we were talking about this intersection of macro and finance, and I guess this line of research, macro financial research has become more important over the years, especially uh, since the 2008 financial crisis. How would you define macro finance research? Is it different from traditional macro models? Is it different from financial economics? How should we think about this, this field? In, in my mind, the field of macro finance is the two-way interaction between the macro economy. And by, when I say the macro economy, we sometimes also refer to it as the real economy. So this is where uh, people get jobs. So, you know, determination of how much employment there is in the society, how much people consume, for example, how much firms invest. That's what I, those are the kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff I mean by, when I say the macro economy, that's the real side of the economy. Um, what happens in the real side of the economy, how that impacts the financial side. So what is the financial side? The financial side would be thinking about what, uh, what is, what is market, what is the valuation of stock market? What is the interest rate in the economy? How much credit there is in the economy? Um, what does the household balance sheet or corporate balance sheet looks like? How much does a government decide to borrow, right? Those are all financial decisions. They are not about the real economy. They are not about, they, they are about some kind of paper basically, right? How much you lend to, <laughs> yeah. so it's about securities and prices and that's the financial side of the economy. But there's obviously a very close connection between those two. What happens 
on the real side, which is the macro economy has implication for the financial side um, and vice versa. And, and it's those connect study of those connections, uh, which goes both ways. Um, that is uh, how I would define the, the field of uh, macro finance, which by the way is a relatively new field. So we have traditionally had the study of the macro economy, the study of the real economy, uh, which is called like macroeconomics. And then we have had the study of the financial markets, which is called finance, right? Um, and typically for various reasons, um, there has been somewhat of a sort of a, 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 a wall between these two fields. So you either just study finance, like, you know, how much a stock should be priced and so on, without thinking that you're just taking as given the real economy. And similarly, people think of the macroeconomy taking as given whatever the financial markets look like and not thinking too seriously at some level um, of possible interactions between those two. That really started to change and, and really 2008 crisis forced people to say, look, you can't just ignore um, one, one, one aspect um, um, of, of these sort of this, this, this two sides of the coin. Um, and that's really started this uh, macro finance literature, um, you know, and, 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 and the book, a house of debt we wrote was was part of that effort, collective effort that we are all involved in, and I just kept working in that. And I think now it, it very clearly there is this 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 field that we collectively refer to as macro finance. Since when did you start getting into I guess this specific subfield called macro finance? When did you gradually start to narrow in? You mentioned you uh, did your PhD at MIT. How, how were things going afterwards? Were, were the, was it smooth sailing yeah. because you were obviously very good or how did you figure out what you loved? Yeah, no, it wasn't smooth sailing at all. Life is often never smooth sailing, <laughs> by the way, um, even if it looks like from the outside. Um, yeah. I, 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 I graduated, I finished my PhD in 2001. And um, as I said, I, I, I was interested in development and Abhijit Banerjee, who recently won the Nobel Prize as well, he was my advisor at MIT. Um, so I was just, you know, planning on doing traditional development, but for various kind of just uh, stroke of luck or whatever, I started looking into questions of finance and so on. What really intrigued me was that I was looking more into finance and banking was what was happening in 2006. And Amir, Amir Sufi, who, who also, we were both at Chicago um, at the time, University of Chicago, and um, you know, you had this big mortgage. This was kind of the height of the mortgage boom. And we were just curious about why people are borrowing as much as they are. And what are they doing with this money? Because it looked superficially that people who are borrowing are like, you know, they're not, don't not necessarily have stable jobs and things like that. So, you know, we have, we have this traditional notion of what we call the permanent income hypothesis that if you have a stable job, expect much higher income, you may want to borrow, which makes sense. But when we looked at, kind of even anecdotally, the kind of people who were borrowing did not look like those traditional uh, borrowers in, uh, in our textbook. So we were like, okay, let's, we need to figure out what actually is going on um, to understand this linkage between what is happening at that time in the financial markets and the real economy in terms of people's consumption decisions and so on. And so we just started calling uh, various uh, data providers if we could get data on who are these individuals who are borrowing so we could study this empirically. We were you know, primarily empiricists, both Amir, Amir and myself. Um, and so that's how it got started. You know, we, we, uh, Equifax, which is a company that is a credit bureau, records people's you know, 
um, credit information. We approached them and to our surprise and really luck, they said, yeah, we are you know, willing to share the data with you, our administrative data. And that's really how it got started. So this was actually before the financial crisis. This is 2006, we got started. And you can see the crisis at some level was a lucky break for us at some level that we were already kind of working on this. And all of a sudden we saw the implications of all that borrowing, you know, markets collapsing and the real and interestingly, both financial market and the real economy, right? So you can see both financial and the real side or the macro economic side, both of those collapsing at the same time, obviously a, a strong sense of connections between the two. And so we just kind of gave up on everything else. I mean, like this is the thing to, 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 to dive into. And so that's, that's how we, you know, we, we kind of really started this, uh, this, this, this research uh, agenda. You mentioned that you were both uh, empiricists, you and Professor Sufi. So, uh, was the, would you say a lot of the macro people are a little bit more on the theoretical side, especially when when you know when we talk about macro models, it's it's like eighty equations all on paper, and it seems very very complicated. And you guys really started using a lot of the micro methodologies, uh, applied micro methodologies to study macro issues, and that was uh, really the fascinating intersection. Yeah, it turned out that it it that that also became like a like a new um, trend uh, or perhaps even wave uh, which has which which is, has been extremely beneficial i think for uh, uh, economics in general and macroeconomics in particular um, because the macro because macroeconomics is the study of the aggregate overall economy a natural constraint that you face as a macroeconomist is that you you know, you kind of only observe one observation, like, you know, take any, you know, US economy, it's just, at the end of the day, you know, you take GDP, that's just, and you, you know, you just test one number and you're seeing the evolution of that one number over time. The natural limitation of that is that how much data you can throw at macroeconomic questions traditionally has been rather limited because you just have this one observation every year, every quarter, how much can you really discern from that? And you really didn't have much more information than that. What really changed, uh, but perhaps people did not recognize the usefulness of that early on was the IT revolution. So the IT revolution, really the 90s and so on, it, it started recording financial and economic transactions in a way that just wasn't done before. So, you know, we never had the capacity to record millions, tens of millions of observations on you know who is borrowing how much every month are they paying it back at what price are they borrowing and things of that nature all of that data was slowly getting collected you know from 90s onwards and then 2000 onwards um, but people did not fully realize the usefulness of that data for answering again those meta big macroeconomic questions and what we realized, Amir Sufi and myself, when we started thinking about all this financial crisis and all those questions was that this actually can be extremely useful for studying the big macro questions of why is unemployment all of a sudden rising beyond 10% and so on. Um, that what, you know, because the, the, the way to think about this is that when we talk about macroeconomic hypotheses or different theories for why you are observing something, uh, there often are competing hypotheses for very legitimate reasons. You know, one party might argue this is because of contraction in demand. Another party might argue, well, this is really because taxes are too high or whatever the different theories might be. Those different macroeconomic theories often have different 
cross-sectional implications of what will happen under one hypothesis to a given set of individuals versus another hypothesis to the same set of individuals. And so if you have more granular, this individual or micro level data, that allows you to potentially construct experiments of sorts that allow you to discriminate between whether it's theory A or theory B that's leading to the big macroeconomic trend that you're observing like the financial crisis. And so that's, those are the kind of points we tried to make early on in our work is like, okay, let's take these two or three competing hypotheses. They have different implications about the cross section that you can then test using more granular micro level data. And in a way, when you do that, you're naturally starting to marry the micro level applied empirical techniques with the macro models and their implications. And that turned out to be extremely useful. It, it allowed you a different set of tools that the field of macro did not have uh, uh, before that. Again, for just technological reasons, the data was just not there. To, but, but because of the IT revolution, now we have that kind of data. And so it really opens up. Um, the, it, it sort of widens the canvas on which macroeconomists can, can paint and draw. And then that's, and that's, that's, that's really a big, um, uh, a big addition to the toolkit for macroeconomists. So maybe this would be a good segue to talk about House of Dead, which is really uh, your critically acclaimed book that really put you on, on, the, on the map. Larry Summers, Paul Krugman, like everybody uh, back, back then. I've talked about this book, wrote about this book. Uh, the research really inspired some other further additional research. How, how did you come exactly to the certain conclusions that you came to in this book? What were some of the findings? And how did you come up with this idea of shared responsibility mortgages, SRM, which uh, would, would be crucial and, and very helpful going down in the road? So, yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the life of a typical researcher is that you typically kind of, you know, move from one question to the next, right? And then, and, and sort of it's one research paper at a time kind of a thing. Um, but, they, but the papers tend to be related because when you ask one question, it leads to further questions. And so that, that's how you write the next paper and so on and so forth. But what we realized as we were doing this work was that there is a common theme, uh, an overarching message that uh, there, there's this common message that's coming out of this work that we are doing, which was to understand the depth and the severity of the 2008 crisis and also to understand why the recovery from it is as slow as it, as it was. So when we did all of that, individual pieces of work, sometimes focusing on the crisis, sometimes focusing on the recovery, sometimes focusing on one aspect versus the other, what we realized was that there is actually a common theme. And so it almost organically, we, we, we felt the need that we need to write a book. We never thought we would ever write a book. We were just you know, writing academic papers and that, that, that's the academic life. But we really realized that um, there is a need to put all of this together in the form of a book. And so um, even some publishers started contacting us. So we said, okay, it's not just us, other people are, you know, uh, are, are thinking along the same lines. So then that's when we started exploring this idea. What is that common theme? I think that common theme is, is very much connected to what I mentioned in the very beginning of what excites me about macro finance as well, which is um, it, it, it became kind of apparent to us that the real problem in the financial crisis is that, as I said, we are all connected through the financial and the economic system, but 
the way we have designed the financial system in particular is designed in a way that it has some fatal flaws, so to speak, that does not take those connections into account. And in particular, the common theme that we thought is really important to emphasize in this context is the theme of risk sharing or the importance of risk sharing. Um, and then, so let me just illustrate that very quickly. If you and I are two different households in an economy, and let's say, you know, you are very well off, I am not as well off. So, you know, but both of us, we want to own a house, you can just buy the house outright, I can only put a small down payment, and then I borrow the rest from you. So in a way, you are partly owning my house. So I borrow and I buy a house, you know, it's an expensive house for me, given my income and all of that. Now, if for whatever reason, there is a big crisis, like a big dip in house prices, what will happen is because you own your house outright, you will, okay, you are seeing house price go down, but if there is, you know, you're not, you don't feel the pinch as much as I do because I borrowed, you know, most of the money to buy the house. So if I have a 20% equity in that house and the value of the house goes down by 10%, I have basically lost half of my uh, net wealth because I've lost you know, 10% of the 20% equity that I had in the house. You, on the other hand, you still have exactly the same amount that you lend to me because your lending to me is protected because the value of the house remains above the total amount that you lend to me. So a natural consequence of this system of financial transactions that we have means that in the event of a downside shock, like a dip in house prices, myself, who's the borrower in this example, will disproportionately feel the, 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 the downside shock. Now, if you think, you say, okay, that's fine. Somebody bears more of it and so on. The problem with that uh, implication is that not only am I feeling um, a, a, a disproportionate sort of impact of the initial shock. It is also the case that because I am sort of less well off, typically I am also less able to bear this shock. You know, for example, I'm probably more likely to get laid off than you, precisely because I'm not as well off. I don't have as stable an income as you and so on. Uh, or you might have savings that you can tap into. I'm not that wealthy. That's why I'm borrowing from you and so on. Um, so A, your, the shock ends up hitting me harder, and B, I am less able to withstand those kind of shocks. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to just like all of a sudden stop spending as much as I would. You know, I'll, I'll try to kind of really just go back into a cocoon, so to speak, you know, just do my groceries, but don't, you know, I'm not going to take those extra trips. I'm not going to buy that, you know, a new car that I might have been thinking about and so on. Um, and when there are many people like me that's going to lead to a certain contraction in the economy because aggregate demand is going to fall. You, on the other hand, are just doing what you were doing before. You're not going to start spending even more, right? So you're not going to compensate for the shortfall in demand that is coming because of my reaction that I just described. And so that thinking, I mean, that, that's the picture that was becoming very apparent in the, in the empirical work that we were doing. And what that shows is the importance of risk sharing, that the, really the, the original sin, if you will, was that when we designed the financial system, we should have put in this financial system some notion of insurance. That is to say, if there is a bad shock, I am insured through 
um, some mechanism um, against that kind of, because it's not my fault, right? It's not my fault that the whole world economy is tanking. It's not like I did anything bad personally. And so uh, from a theoretical perspective, that's also the right notion of insurance. You want the most susceptible to be insured against events that they have no control over. You know, just like a poor farmer needs to be protected against bad weather risk, because you know you don't want them to suffer for no reason of or no fault of their own, I should say. And so that's the you know so this this notion of we are all connected, we are all in this together. Distribution matters, insurance mechanisms really matter, and that really then dips into the political economy, the legal how you structure the mechanism. Um, there are so many aspects of it, unemployment insurance, whether you have fiscal consolidation inside the US versus not, for example, in, in, the, in, the, in, in, in the European Union, those kind of things become really first order once you start thinking about this notion of the importance of insurance. And so we thought we need to talk about this, we need to talk about, uh, we need to write about this. And so, you know, we, we, we did all of that in the book and then just as an example of what you can do, to sort these kind of problems, we said, you know what, the sort of the traditional mortgage that we have can be improved upon by adding this insurance mechanism in it, which is what we call the shared responsibility mortgages, um, and, and and that's that's how you know sort of those those ideas developed. But again, I think the more important thing was that we felt there was this common theme um, um, that that develops out of this collective experience of ours out of the 2008 recession that we thought was was important to. Um, explain to others. I guess the COVID-19 shock is often uh, uh, kind of compared with the 2008 financial crisis because it was also a big exogenous shock to the system. Uh, how did you feel about the government's response in the U.S. To towards the COVID response? Obviously, we saw the Federal Reserve came in with a lot of support, but also on the fiscal side, there was the unemployment insurance. There was also some kind of a universal basic income in the form of stimulus checks. Did you feel like these were the right of buffers or cushions uh, that, that really alleviated a lot of the pain or? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's really, because we were kind of in the middle of the 2008 crisis as well, and obviously we all experienced COVID, at some level it's night and day difference between the response to 2008 and the response to COVID. I hope partly because of the lessons learned from 2008 crisis. I remember when we were talking about 2008 and so on, even some people on the left um, a bit, well, criticized us in different levels. So for example, you, know, you mentioned Larry Summers who was kind enough to, um, um, to, to, to say positive things about the work and the book. Um, but even Summers said that we were perhaps a bit naive on the policy side, because we were basically saying, look, the government is not doing enough, especially for the households, they need to be they need to be protected against foreclosures. And so, you know, their mortgages need to be restructured automatically instead of putting these homes in foreclosures and so on. Um, even people on the left um, said, you look, this is a bit naive. You, this would be too extreme. We can't do that. What about the banking system and so on and so forth? And we, we kept saying, look, you have to take the system as a whole. There are real implications of these individuals being forced into foreclosure. They're going to cut consumption. They're going to uh, their house prices are going to fall even further. That's going to have a negative kind of feedback snowball effect and so on. So you need to nip it in the bud. You need to cut it off by, you know, providing again that insurance, right? It's just that idea of collective insurance is super important. Unfortunately, not as much was done 
as was needed in the time. Um, and that's again another thing we try to say in the in, in, in the book House of Death. Luckily, the response to the COVID crisis uh, in terms of what I would say orders of magnitude larger um, in, in, in some respects at least. Um, and that has really helped limit the overall macroeconomic impact. Um, so unemployment insurance was you know, very generous, extended for longer periods of time. The fiscal stimulus was much more generous in the COVID response relative to uh, the TARP bill and so on uh, in post-2008. Um, and then the third thing that happened in the COVID crisis, I mean, you already mentioned the, the checks that were also helpful. But then another aspect, just to give you an example of what did not happen in 2008, but did happen in the COVID crisis was the eviction moratorium. Um, and so you could not, you know, I mean, so we never had a foreclosure crisis, you know, we never, and, and, and that was a huge help on the housing market. Uh, and the mortgage market and the financial system and the real economy. So they all, you know, this, this feedback that I talked about in the beginning uh, is very important to keep in mind. In 2008, we had this very narrow view that the only thing we need to save is the banking sector. That's basically the, and that, you know, you can let households suffer. You can let household balance sheets go, go, uh, go down. Uh, you can let 4 million people uh, go into foreclosure uh, as long as you protect the banks who are lending to these individuals. Who are, this was fundamentally the flawed logic of you know, that particular uh, time period. Uh, and that's, that's what we, we, we sort of uh, uh, reacted to partly. Um, and I think in, 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 uh, from that perspective, again, the COVID response has been much better. And we, we now have the evidence. So that's very heartening to see as well, that we have the evidence. There's some very nice work that other people are doing right now that actually does exactly that comparison of 2008 versus COVID. For example, on this um, mortgage market, housing market, and individual spending uh, aspect. And it really you know, bears that out that the big difference this time is that the, again, you can think of this as insurance, if you will, that this, you know, this, this sort of taking um, a hold of the situation through the government and providing this ins insurance against really, this isn't, you know, it's nobody's fault, right? very obviously. This unforeseen collective punishment of sorts, we need to ensure each other. We are all in, I keep saying this word over and over again, you're all in this together. That's the, that's the sort of, that's the thing that comes out of um, the, the, the study of the ecosystem. Again, that is our economy that we need to ensure ourselves against these collective mishaps. Because um... The, the key issue is that when households are not doing so well, then aggregate demand is falling because people are not spending as much. The economy is also running into other constraints like zero lower bound. So you cannot just stimulate the economy with monetary policy. So, so this is really the time you need to help the household so that they could in turn help the economy recover faster. And that's what hopefully we have done in COVID. But I guess, as you said, the, the 2008 experience was that we really thought we needed to save the banking sector which in hindsight, it, it probably the U.S. did recover faster after saving the banking sector. Probably better to do that than, you know, letting the banking sector fail. But what we're saying is they should have also stepped in to, to help the households, like we did this time with COVID. At least doing things like uh, the moratorium on foreclosures, extending certain deadlines on, on which you can pay back your auto loans or your home mortgages. That is something very reasonable to be done uh, in, in COVID. That, that's kind of the broader logic here if I'm understanding that's, correctly. That's, that's exactly right. And, and, and just to add one other thing to it, 
you can it's it becomes even if you on the saving the banking system aspect it becomes much easier to save the banking system if through for example fiscal actions you support household balance sheets in those times so they raise aggregate demand that raises aggregate gdp and that is going to raise the net worth of banks as well because obviously they are lending to the entire economy and so again this is this is again why macrofinance is such an interesting field to study because what you realize is that having one needs to have a holistic view of the economy when you are thinking about designing interventions in the midst of any crisis covid or 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 or, or housing um and understanding those connections and then intervening with all margins in focus actually becomes a self reinforcing um sort of a, a mechanism that benefits lifts all boards so to speak uh, together as opposed to just focusing on one you get lesser bang than for for the same buck if you just if you just focus more narrowly so i guess one question on everybody's mind is uh, did we overdo it in in the covid crisis obviously i know economists have often said when the house is burning down you don't you know call up the fire department and say whose fault is it you save the house first so it was it was good that the federal reserve stepped in very aggressively the federal government stepped in very aggressively but people in the financial market are certainly concerned about inflation which you know we can talk uh whether whether that should be concerning but also uh deficit other other issues brought up mostly by people on the slightly more conservative side they they seem to be criticizing that there is a uh shift in the consensus within mainstream economists uh, towards becoming much more keynesian ultra keynesian consensus rushing into the biden administration maybe not modern monetary theory yet but really mmt light version of stimulus uh, how do you th- what do you think of those criticisms i know you you're not a big fan of uh, modern monetary theory <laughs> yeah i was going to say let's let's put mmt aside i wouldn't <laughs> yeah. uh, i wouldn't want to un, um unnecessarily mix the two things um first of all you want to err slightly in the direction of overdoing things when you are in the middle of the crisis both on the fiscal and the monetary dimension the reason for that is that if it if it ends up being the case that you have overdone it you have mechanism to unwind it so for example on the monetary policy side you can raise rates sooner or a bit higher so so i understand there are limits but on the margin you want to do it you want to deliberately overdo things a bit because the other risk is really uh, you know it's asymmetric underdoing it yeah because because you know you, then you lose control of the yeah. economy you know if it starts to drop if it starts to dip for various reasons um so on the other end if uh, when you know, if if the recovery starts becoming too strong at certain level you have ways of controlling that by as i said by raising the interest rate on the monetary side or on the fiscal side uh, for example you 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 also potentially have mechanisms of uh, uh, for example you know changing your expected spending or um, or raising taxes if you if you need to do that so so those you know it's 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 easier to cut spending if it turns out that you are spending more than you should or it's easier to raise i guess that's debatable whether how easy it is to raise but at least conceptually you can do things on the fiscal side if it turns out that you have done you overdid it the first time um but really you know the evidence so far suggests that you know it's 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 good whatever was done um was 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 good for the economy 
and there is no strong case so far that I can see that suggests that, you know, uh, yes, inflation um, is higher, but really prices are kind of recovering back to where they would have been in the absence of, 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 of COVID. And a little bit of inflation is, uh, is perhaps uh, warranted anyways. Um, but again, you have to weigh all of that against the alternative of how many more millions would have suffered and so on. So I think it's important we keep that perspective in mind. I think one thing I learned from uh, this year doing research with you, obviously because of uh, I was studying the efficacy of debt forgiveness program and policy evaluation, but this idea of counterfactual, meaning what would have happened if you had not done this. So, so a lot of times if you hadn't done this, the, the situation is much worse. It's not just you know, normal, it's like much worse. Uh, that, that could be the case. So yes, but, but maybe Professor Mian, we should talk a little bit about just giving our listeners a sense of what had happened over the past 30, 40 years, those long run, what you call secular trends, uh, because uh, you, you talk to us a lot, a lot about how um, both from a statistical and an intuitive standpoint, you know, a lot of the shocks within business cycles, within market cycles, they might have high variance in the short run. They might catch a lot of attention in the media, but in the long run, it kind of cancels things out. But there are also those little uh, long run forces that have very small variances in the short run, but eventually in the long run, they really add up and they show up. You know, if you look at some chart over 40 years, you're like, oh, I didn't realize this is the elephant in the room. And so there's something deeper happening than uh, that doesn't appear into the day to day. So maybe we can talk about some of those uh, what people call macro financial trends, and uh, perhaps I'll show some charts from from uh, your your lecture, and maybe we can yeah. go over some of some of these. I, I thought that would, that would be nice. Um, so I'm pulling up for for our listeners. You can watch this on YouTube. We'll we'll, we'll have this on the screen, but you can also listen on, on Spotify, iTunes. You will get the same information. But uh, Professor Mia, maybe we can just quickly go over some of those charts that you, that you have: rising debt, falling interest rate, global liquidity trap. Uh, credit spread and so on. I'll, I'll let you take it from here. So, Sure. Um, you know, I think we've all heard this story about this frog who is uh, sitting uh, leisurely on a, on a pan full of water and he doesn't realize that it, there's actually the stove is on underneath it and it's actually slowly warming up and uh, until it's too late and then it's too late to jump, right? The one sort of one way to think of that story is that the frog doesn't jump because he doesn't recognize these slow moving but very persistent force, right? That's the point. Slow moving but very persistent forces like the water gradually heating up. You may not, um, uh, by the way, you know, climate change, global warming is another example of that. You may not kind of notice it on a day-to-day, month-to-month or even year-to-year basis, but if that force continues to build up underneath, um, you want to make sure that you recognize them before it is too late. And what you're showing on the slide is uh, very much connected to that. So, so far we have talked about like the crises, right? Whether it's, it's, it's COVID pandemic or the 2008 crisis. But it turns out that there is a bigger force in the background that is perhaps even more important than either the pandemic or the 2008 crisis. And that is the rise of inequality. Um, It's now very well documented that across the globe since the 1980s, uh, the global economy, especially the advanced countries, including the United States, 
they have been experiencing a continuously rising inequality. And in particular, it's, it's extreme inequality. So what I mean by that is that the best way to think of that, and like you have it on the slide up here, is the top, the share of income that goes to the top 1% globally. That share of income has been rising. It was like around 10% in 1980, as you can see the blue line in this graph. Um, but it almost doubled to close to 20% in more recent years. And, the, and it happened gradually over time, right? This is like this water becoming hotter and hotter for that frog. What we have been working on in recent work is thinking through the implications of this rising inequality. And this again connects the macro economy with the financial markets and vice versa. Uh, and it also connects the, or, or also plays out the importance of distribution for the overall macro economy. So let me try to describe what I mean by that. Um, you can look at this, the share of income going to the top 1%. Okay, it's almost doubled since 980, but so what? Who cares, right? Um, it turns out that it really matters. Not only from a distributional perspective, you might say as a society, we don't, you know, we don't want there to be very large differences between the rich and the non-rich and so on. And I, I think those arguments have a lot of appeal, but let's put that aside, okay? I'm not making a, uh, a subjective- Yes, an ethical normative judgment about rich isn't good, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Let's put that aside as legitimate as those arguments might be, let's put that aside. And I'm going to make a very kind of a practical argument, which is that such rise in inequality is actually not good for all of us collectively. And we need to recognize the dangers of extreme inequality for the system overall. Again, this idea of the economy being the ecosystem and this importance of this ecosystem maintaining a sense of balance uh, is extremely important. And the problem with extreme rise in extreme inequality is that it threatens that sense of balance in a way that it threatens to bring down the entire economy with it. Okay, so now it's no longer a moral argument that in extreme inequality is dangerous. It's no longer a moral argument. I'm actually making a practical argument from an economic standpoint that extreme inequality is not healthy for the overall economy. So let me now try to explain why that is the case. The key thing to start things off to understand is that in terms of human behavior, there is one important difference between the very rich who keep getting more versus the rest of the population. And that key difference in their behavior is that the very rich, think of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, you know, whoever in that league, if you keep giving them a million more, a billion more, they have already satiated themselves in terms of how much they can spend on themselves and their family in terms of their consumption. So in technical terms, their marginal propensity to consume out of the extra billion that you give them is not very high. So what does that mean? That means they try to save the additional income that they keep on getting more and more of over time. So the key question is what, and that's exactly what I meant by, by the way, that we are all connected, right? Their savings 
has to go somewhere. So what does all of that mean? That means if you keep raising extreme inequality again, what I mean by that is income going to the top 1%, because those individuals are going to largely be saving the additional income that they are getting, overall from a macroeconomic perspective, you now have an additional accumulation of aggregate gross savings that need to go somewhere. The key question is what happens to those savings? And what has happened since 1980s, and you can see that in the graph that you're showing um, on the slide right now, is that those additional savings have been channeled back into the economy in the form of ever rising debt. Um, and so the picture on the left that you are seeing right now is a picture of total debt or credit in the economy as a share of the overall size of the economy. So everything is normalized by GDP. And what you can see is that since 1980s, and by the way, if you had um, uh, drawn this figure from, let's say, 1950 onwards, you'll see that this rise really starts in 1980, like it's flat before that, and it really starts to rise after 1980. So what you can see very clearly in the data is that as the economy is becoming more and more unequal, again, in the form of the top 1% earning more and more, there is this tremendous rise in credit or debt in the economy. And the key point we are trying to make in this new work, uh, a lot of it is joined with Ludwig Straub at Harvard, is that these two things are intimately connected. This rise in inequality is intimately connected with this uh, uh, phenomena of rising reliance on debt or credit. This credit or debt, by the way, takes different forms. Sometimes it shows up as people borrowing more through mortgages. But other times it shows up as governments having to borrow more. And again, the reason they have to borrow more is should be very intuitive at, uh, at, at this point. The reason governments and, and, and non-rich households have to borrow more is somebody needs to spend for the economy to maintain balance, to remain, to for all the people to remain employed, someone needs to spend. So if Bill Gates and Bezos of the world are earning more and more, but they are not spending it, but they are wanting to save it. It must be the case that someone else takes their savings and spends it. And that can only happen in the modern economic and financial system. That can only happen through credit or debt, which is that they borrow from them and then they spend that money either in the form of government running deficits, persistent deficits, or in the form of non-rich households borrowing and then spending uh, that money for their individual or household uh, consumption. And that's exactly, as I said, what has been happening more and more of from 980 onward. Now, at this point, you can say, okay, fine, interesting story, but so what? It's a system that's functioning fine. As they get richer, other people can borrow more, and so what's the problem? The problem is that when you are spending through borrowing, it helps you today, but tomorrow you have a problem because you have to pay the money back. Now, this is, this is where the story gets a little bit more interesting. For the sake of argument, Tiger, let's say you are Jeff Bezos, right? Yes. So if I borrow from you um, and I spend that money today, 
tomorrow I have to pay that money back to you. Now there are two problems with that. The first one is tomorrow when I pay, try to pay you the money back, I actually have to pay you not just the money I borrowed plus interest back to you. That's one problem. The second problem is when I do that, I have to actually cut from my spending to pay you that money back. Because remember last period I had a high spending because I was borrowing from you. Now if I have to pay it back, I have to cut back my spending. You on the other hand, when you get that money back, the problem is you are already very rich. You are not going to spend that money. So we are back to square one. So what, what happens next year now? Well, next year, the only way the economy can maintain its balance is if you give me my money back, you say, basically, that's for refinancing. Yeah, continue to lend to you. My original loan, but even that is not enough because you are now continuing to earn more and more. So I must actually keep my higher consumption, consumption <laughs> by borrowing even more. Now we have a problem. How can I borrow more when my income is not rising? Remember, you are the one becoming richer and richer. I am not becoming richer and richer. You are, your share of the in, income is rising faster. The only way, and now we are going to understand the second uh, graph on the right that you're showing um, on the slides. The only way we can sustain this mechanism of ever rising borrowing to sustain the same level of spending in the face of ever rising extreme inequality. The only way we can sustain this game, so to speak, is if the interest rate continues to fall. And that's exactly what we have seen. So that's the second picture on the right, which is labeled falling rates. As we have seen, you know, there are different ways you can calculate uh, interest rates, so we, that's why there are different colored lines, but the basic point is all the same, which is, as we have seen inequality rise, we have seen debt rise for reasons I just described, but none of that is sustainable. This is the point about balance. This is the beauty of studying the economic system. None of that is sustainable or feasible in the long run, unless the interest rate, which is also the price of debt, if you like, continues to fall. Because that is how you are going to allow me to continue to borrow more, uh, because the debt service payment is lower and lower and lower. And that's exactly what we have seen over time, that interest rates, and now you're showing me this global picture, which is extremely interesting and fascinating, right? So global interest rates were typically on an upward trend. Until 1980, again, notice the, this strange coincidence exactly when inequality starts to rise, we see this massive downward trend in interest rates, which again is very well documented the world over. Uh, and it's really a global phenomenon, right? Although I'm using US because it's the most important economy and so on, but it really, it's, it's illustrative of what's happening globally, what's happening everywhere. So the only way, where are we now? The only way to sustain this economy of ever rising extreme inequality the only way to sustain this economy, the only way to keep this economy in balance is for the level of debt as a share of GDP to continue to rise. But that is only possible if the interest rate continues to fall. And that's exactly what's been happening. Except there is a problem now, which is there is a limit to how far you can push this, this mechanism. This Ponzi scheme in, in some way, <laughs> this game. 
Yeah. Um, um, and we are kind of close to approaching that limit because one way to understand that limit is remember you're trying to put more uh, credit in the system by lowering interest rates, but at some point interest rates get close to zero, which is kind of where we are right now. And it becomes much harder. You know, it's like you know they, they, this this uh, term people use pushing on a string. That's what you know you're trying to do more and more because interest rates will just not be you know it's, it'll, it'll become impossible at some level to push interest rates even lower. And then you have a real problem because now you cannot raise debt because interest rates cannot go lower, and so you cannot spend as much as you should. And so the economy overall has this demand problem, if you will, uh, which will tend to, which will then start to um, all else equal, it will start to impact on growth and growth will start to go down. Um, and economy will start to contract relative to what it would have been, right? In the absence of such negative forces. And this is really the punchline of, again, we are all in this together, rise in inequality actually hurts everyone collectively. It's no longer a subjective matter. It's no longer just an ethical or moral question. So Professor Mia, I think another uh, parallel trend that was happening was that there's also fallen investment and productivity. So real investment has actually fallen. Productivity uh, has, has fallen. So in, in some way, this credit boom that we're seeing right now is not really being invested uh, into, into building new roads or, or, or something. A lot of times uh, it's, we're seeing this huge growth in credit, it's demand driven, it's not supply driven. So uh, the ongoing question that a lot of people are asking is what are the forces driving up this finance but not real investment? This is the greater financialization of the economy of the credit boom, but not the real economy uh, boom per se. So, so I guess that's also a parallel trend that's been happening. Yeah, absolutely. And this other parallel trend is, I would say the other big, um, question that needs to be addressed. Um, it's all actually, they're all related to each other. Um, so in particular, um, the rise in extreme inequality partly reflects the rise in concentration or accumulation of economic power, right? The two naturally go hand in hand. Um, if all of a sudden, one firm like Amazon dominates the retail sector, then obviously who owns that firm is going to be earning more and more. So this rise in extreme inequality is, has been connected and correlated with this other fact, which is the rise in industrial concentration of a few firms um, having a larger and larger footprint in the market. Now, why is this related to the investment point that you were making? One, there's a large literature on what promotes investment. And very intuitively, as you can imagine, more competitive landscape is a good mechanism for promoting investment. If you and I are fighting for market share, we will, you know, I will try to outsmart you by, and... by innovating, exactly, investing in R&D, trying to innovate, trying to, you know, provide better services to the customers so they come to me rather than go to you. Competition is good. The problem is um, if for various reasons, uh, again, partly related to the same sort of trends that are 
leading to rising inequality, if concentration is also rising, you will see less reason for investment, number one. And again, those that's very cons much consistent with what we are, sh what we are showing uh, earlier. The other interesting fact is, and this is also, by the way, connected to some recent work we did with Ernest Liu, who's at Princeton. The other thing is there's actually a feedback. Remember the story I told earlier where the interest rate is falling because of rising inequality. It turns out that there's actually this important feedback mechanism between that fall in interest rates all the way down to zero and this rising concentration or rising market power in the system in the economy. This, by the way, is another example of macrofinance, how what happens on one side, in this case, interest rate, which is the financial side, has a feedback effect on the real side, which is you know, how concentrated the, 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 the structure of the market is. Um, and the, the, the reason for that is that very low interest rates are actually more beneficial for people who already are ahead. That's actually a fascinating question for various reasons. Again, you know, we'll be, we'll talk about some of those in that, in, that, in that work I just mentioned. But the bottom line is uh, because lower interest rates, especially very low interest rates are more beneficial for industry leaders, it tends to perpetuate concentration and hence inequality. Now think of how this is a sad uh, realization, right? Because interest rate is going down in, in a way to rebalance the economy, to respond to the consequences of inequality. But what it's partly doing in the process is it's actually perpetuating, institutionalizing at some level, that inequality even more. So you really get stuck. I think that, in, that insight is very important to understand that when you study the system as a whole, not only is this rising inequality an issue for all the reasons that I mentioned, but the response, the natural economic responses of the system to rising inequality happen in a way that it actually cements that problem even further. And so it really boils down to the importance of taking action through policy to respond to these. I think, I think that, that's a very important realization. And that's why this is, in my opinion, the most important question on the economic side. There are many other questions as well, but I think on the economic side, this, the lack, the, 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 the rise in inequality and the lack of balance that I explained is the most important economic question. From a macroeconomic perspective, again, I'm not making any value judgment here, as important as those judgments are, but from a macroeconomic, uh, and, and this is what I feel is not well understood yet. Yes, a lot of people, I would say even on the political left, when people talk about inequality, the usual argument, which I agree with, is again the moral argument. But I think it is very important to understand that in addition to that moral argument, there is a second imperative. And I think if we focus on that second imperative as well, it will actually enlarge the umbrella of how many people actually should care about this problem that just like we should all care about climate change, we should all care about the rise in inequality because it, it is impacting the entire economic structure at this point in a way that it is making it unwholesome. Let me just make one last sort of comment in that context, I think is very important. And again, I want to use this example to highlight yet another reason, very low interest rates, feedback, 
in perpetuating inequality. The idea is the following. So again, we have all understood why rising inequality leads to rising credit and hence falling interest rates. Once you understand that, it has one more implication, which is extremely important. And that implication is when interest rates fall, a natural implication of falling interest rates is that asset valuations rise. Again, the reasoning is very straightforward. Anyone who's taken kind of finance 101 is, is familiar with what we call the present discounted valuation, right? If you're trying to value a stock or if you're trying to value you know, a property which is giving a rental, a rental income to you, the way you determine its value today is you discount the future cash flows to figure out how much you're willing to pay. And the discount rate is a function of the prevailing interest rates. If you can borrow very cheaply at very low interest rates for extended periods of time, which is pretty much the case these days, you will value the same asset a lot higher than you otherwise would have. So what does that mean? That means as interest rate falls for all the reasons that I mentioned, a natural correlate of that would be that asset valuations will continue to rise which by the way is exactly again what we have seen, right? So it's not just, I'm not just hypothesizing. You look at the data and it's again, time and time again, the data confirms what we might fear. Now, why am I emphasizing that? Because this rise in valuations actually ends up also perpetuating inequality. And the reason for that is who owns the existing assets? By That's definition, it's going to be the rich. And the more unequal the distribution is, the more unequal are going to be the gains in those uh, asset revaluations as a result of uh, falling interest rates. And so what, what ends up happening is that the non-rich who don't have much of those assets, they feel more and more left out. And housing, by the way, is an ex excellent example of that. What we have seen over the last few decades as these phenomena have unraveled across the world, including the US, it is becoming harder and harder for first generation homeowners to actually be able to buy a house. It's really fascinating to look at in the data. Um, home ownership rates are falling in the US. And more importantly, Home ownership rates for first-time homeowners, which is to say people who are not rich enough to actually own a home through their parents, for example, that home ownership rate has, is now the lowest it has ever been in modern U.S. history. And the reason for that is not that they can't get credit. It's very cheaply available. It's this unwinnable game they're in that while more credit is more cheaply available, the house prices have risen even faster. And their incomes have not kept pace, which again goes back to the problem of entrenched inequality. And so you're really stuck in this bad equilibrium where extreme inequality is becoming more and more entrenched. And most importantly, as I tried to explain, it is having these perverse macroeconomic consequences that end up threatening the entire ecosystem, the entire macroeconomy. Uh, Professor Mian, you talked about the financial markets, uh, the housing market, which we should get into in a bit, but uh, just to qu quickly reiterate your point about the imbalance between the rich and poor. 
I, I think that is why a lot of economists, including you, support more progressive taxation, wealth tax, because it's not even le it's less about a, a revenue argument. People often say you can you can get the same revenue through this current system. It's about correcting that imbalance, adjust a little bit more of a distributive mechanism, and that is actually more key to the problem to solve the imbalance and not just the revenue problem. But I, I guess to to quickly uh, piggyback off of that, when when you talk about um, how to address this imbalance, how to uh, push the U.S. out of secular stagnation, or, or in, in other kind of charts that we saw, you know, the falling, falling uh, interest rate, falling investment productivity. How do we stimulate the economy out of this? There are people who say uh, the, the way is to spend out of this. If Well, we don't have to get into modern monetary theories, certainly, but uh, even what Biden administration is doing right now seems to be, uh, you know, not worrying about that deficit for now and, and for good reasons. How, how do you think about that front and how would you address uh, people's concern about quote unquote Fed printing money because you explained to us in class it's not really printing money it's a very you know uh, fantastical way of portraying this in in the media but what exactly is happening when you know quote unquote the Fed monetizes the debt and prints the money and is that the right way to stimulate this economy out of this stagnation? Yeah. Um... You asked many questions, Tiger, and they're all important big questions. I'll, I'll, I'll try to take them on uh, sort of one at a time. The first um, point to keep in mind is that the kind of problems that I talked about, because they are driven by these, as I mentioned at the very beginning, these slow moving persistent forces of rising inequality. And you know, really this rise in inequality, it's it's driven by, again, more, you know, part of it is technology, but other part is, uh, you know, maybe the lack of antitrust regulation and things of that nature. So it's really, it's, it's deep in the, and, and other part is just, you know, lobbying and the political economy of this, you know, people earning rents and all of that is in it. But my, my point is that these slow moving forces that we are all now bearing the consequences of, they are deep structural forces in the economy. I think that's very important to recognize upfront. Why? Because when we start talking about potential policy solutions, which is what your question is really about, those policy solutions have to be of the same nature. That is to say, the policy response has to be also structural in nature. You have to, you know, you have to attack the problem at its foundation. Otherwise, it's just putting a band-aid on, a deep wound. Otherwise, it's just as the cliche goes, you're kicking the can down the road. And unfortunately, that's what has been done over the last many, many years. And one worry is that we will continue to try to do that, but we are kind of at a point where you can't do too much of that without bearing more and more negative consequences. So what does that mean? What, well, let me try to give you an example. What you, first of all, you really need to work on ways to change the structure of the economy to reduce the extent of extreme inequality. And if you are unable to do that, you're not going to solve this problem. So fiscal spending, so for example, if you just blindly say we have a problem, let's do deficit spending and be done with it. It's so easy to do, right? Borrow, interest rates are low, borrow, and let's just do it and get be done with it. 
this is where it's a bit you know you really need to understand the system otherwise it's it's the the statement is right yes we need to do deficit spending given the short term problem of weak demand so yeah do it but if you do it without addressing the structural problems you are going to stay in this problem forever in a way and 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 sometimes i say that's no way to live right because think of the consequences of like for example we just talked about home ownership and how first generation is finding it hardest ever this is the land of opportunity we talk about it's no longer true because if you can't buy a house in the right neighborhood as very nice research has shown being able to buy the house in the right neighborhood is extremely important for good outcomes for my children yes social mobility so healthcare the, everything yeah exactly and so again the broader point i want to make here is while deficit spending is needed in the short run if you only if that's the only thing you do and you don't address the structural reason for rising inequality you are going to be unsuccessful in the long run and our society will continue to sort of atrophy in in, in that sense that this mobility of you know young but not well off generations to rise to the top having the same chance is going to be less and less true in this system and that's very important so 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 what does so so that's why deficit spending is not necessarily a solution as you all already have mentioned we need to rebalance the system and that's going to require a combination of things in my view so what let me give you an example one is progressive taxation but really because the problem is driven by extreme inequality you need very progressive taxation and that means thinking seriously about wealth taxes for example so i personally i i i i i strongly support the kind of wealth taxes that were proposed by elizabeth warren um i think they are needed they are warranted but my justification for that is actually perhaps different from even what senator warren says um and again i don't disagree with those statements what i'm saying is that there's actually another perhaps even bigger reason to go for that kind of taxation because we need to rebalance the economy for all the reasons i've tried to to highlight and i would actually even be in favor of putting those kind of taxes in place and then reducing taxes for the middle class you know maybe the indirect taxation through payroll and so on um so that's the, the, i would uh, uh, similarly raising the minimum wage it's things like wealth tax and raising the minimum wage would be one example of what i would call structural reforms so first of all i think we need to think more boldly in terms of the reforms that are needed uh when we when we when we take this problem holistically um but just the taxation is not going to be enough i think the other place where we need to think more seriously about is um public investment people have talked about the lack of public investment the lack of infrastructure investment uh the lack of investment in r&d for example i think those things are very important we really need to for example boost r&d spending um in especially you know what is unfortunately sometimes called the flyover country right the you know out away from the coast we really need to build centers of innovation through public spending build uh, uh, research universities and the ecosystems around it through public investment in 
the in middle america and really change the 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 inequality across geography in the us i think that's not a healthy thing either so that's another place where i think we need to focus more on and then finally the you know the third pillar if you will of 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 changing the structure is through antitrust regulation by dealing with the rise in market concentration i think that's the other you know uh, breaking up monopolies that sort of i think there there's a need to think more seriously about that uh especially in this new um 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 economy of you know where digital platforms are have had this sort of natural monopoly kind of flavor to them you really need to think more seriously about what is the right way to regulate them uh, to minimize uh, sort of the perverse monopoly uh, uh, effects of, uh, of 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 these platforms um so that's the third place where we need to uh, focus on but that's that in my mind is the way to respond to this deeper structural problem in my mind it really starts with communicating why we need to do this and this for me at least you know that's the the the, the area where i can do something and so that's for me that is the excitement of doing macro finance literature in this area right now as i said i i i think of inequality as sort of the the big question that we need to 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 seriously think about and and think about its consequences and then how to respond to those consequences I know I I looped in uh, too many questions. Uh, every time I ask a question, it's like five questions. But re regarding the point about what we're seeing today, the the imbalance in financial markets, uh, especially after um, after the COVID shock, the Federal Reserve obviously stepped in very aggressively. There was a lot of deficit spending on the federal government side as well. How should we view the relationship between this fiscal monetary coordination? Uh, is the Federal Reserve printing money? how should we think about this well first of all as we discussed because the interest rates are already at zero at least the interest rate that the fed directly controls which is the short end of the yield curve so there is no more monetary policy to do if that's all you were in this game for and so first of all the only other thing the fed can do is buy bonds um by issuing reserves right now which is what they have been doing and so on and you can have different opinions on that but one point i want to just highlight is that when the fed does that you cannot call it printing money if that's the only thing that happens why because all they are doing is they are going inside the balance sheet of the private banking system they are buying bonds from those private banks and they are replacing them with reserves and when interest rates are close to zero they start looking more and more like these two things you're just replacing bonds with reserves on banks balance sheets if that's the only thing that happens it's not not much has changed actually even though the numbers are they have they have you know bought trillions of this and that um practically not that much has changed and i think that's the first thing to keep in mind and which is why despite the fed borrowing in uh, un sort of uh, seen uh, magnitudes the real economy doesn't seem to kind of react much to it um and there's some work showing that that it's you know there are some effects but they are you know not huge effects and so on but so the reason is exactly what i just described right because if you actually just go through the mechanics of it is not uh, so what is actually happening is whoever owns you know so think of yourself as owning shares in jp morgan and so on whoever owns these private banks used to own 
treasuries because the banks were holding those treasuries. But now instead of holding those treasuries, they have you know reserves, which are kind of as good as treasuries um, and are you know, as I, as I was saying, at zero interest rate, they're kind of priced similarly as well. Um, so not that much actually changes. Uh, the only thing that can be different is what the fiscal side is doing, right? So if, is, is, is the government actually issuing more bonds and spending against it? So the only, the only kind of game in town at some level is really the fiscal side, uh, which, is, which is true and that's, but but even there, you know, it's like somebody have when, when the Fed issues bonds, somebody has to hold those bonds in, you know, and and uh, otherwise the interest rate will rise and so on. And what we have seen is that despite the Fed issuing more and more bonds, people are just people are lapping it up. Even today, as we speak, the ten-year rate is you know is sort of you know almost at all-time lows. Um, if you exclude some of the deep dives in the middle of COVID. Uh, it's kind of as low, you know, there's no reason to um, um, worry about rates being high in any historical sense, not at all. And yet debt is at its highest level in recent history. Um, what explains this? And, and in my view, what explains this is once again, is the fact that because of this, these extreme levels of inequality, there is this more and more willingness at the very top of the wealth distribution to just hold paper, right? Um, but there are consequences of that propensity to save so much at the very top, which is that the aggregate demand, the economy suffers for all the reasons that I mentioned. And so again, the only game left in town is for the government to say, you know what, you want a piece of paper, I'll issue you a piece of paper, but they are the only player in this economy that can issue them a piece of paper that they really want to hold and then spend against it, right? Because no one else can do that. That's the key thing. That's why fiscal policy remains the only game in town in this circumstance. And that's, that's where we are in. So what do I think about all of that? As I said in the very beginning, you need to do that. There is no other option available. It's the only game in town. However, you cannot continue to do that. That's no way to live, as I said earlier. We need to start addressing the structural causes of these problems. Otherwise, a world with extremely high levels of debt and zero interest rate, you can also think of that as what called financialization of the economy, if you will. A world like that, an extremely unequal, concentrated world with very high credit and debt, zero interest rates. Yes, you can live like that for a while, but as you do that, the society is actually suffering on dimensions that we should all care about, which is it's not a land of equal opportunity for all. It becomes more and more a world of very large differences between the haves and the have-nots. And ultimately that's not sustainable, especially in a democracy. In fact, even in a non-democracy, I don't think it's sustainable. Um, and we are facing the consequences of those problems already very much apparent. And so again, that's why I think while we have the opportunity, um, speaking about you know, people in power, I think while they have the opportunity, they need to equally recognize the urgency of the situation. Just, I would again, I would give the same analogy of less like climate change. It's urgent, it needs to be addressed. And I would put extreme inequality in the same uh, sentence and say, just like we talked about climate change, a very real threat, it needs to be addressed. You cannot kick 
the can any anymore. I think similarly on this side, there is there is a need of urgency on the political side to go for structural reforms. Something we have not seen happen, and we you know we have, I've already talked about what what I mean by that. Uh, Professor Mean, are you optimistic at, at all? Because there doesn't seem to be any political momentum that is, I mean, we saw some momentum on, on raising the global minimum tax rate for corporations to 15% and that G7 countries agreed on that and there's some progress there. But domestically in the US, Biden was talking about bringing the corporate tax back. Even, even had he uh, li lifted uh, corporate ta tax rates, it would have been in historical, you know, in, in the long run of history, still very low. But uh, it seems that wealth tax, uh, higher corporate tax is nowhere to be seen in the US. People are more fascinated by talking about uh, culture wars and <laughs> Wuhan lab and <laughs> many other issues rather than uh, addressing those structural issues. And so, so I, I don't know, are, are you pessimistic about uh, what would happen if in 10 yeah. years, 20 years, uh, still no progress? I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard question in, in a sense that, first of all, I, uh, I have no comparative advantage and I'm certainly not in the business of predictions or forecasts, right? I think of myself as an economist, as you know, that my job is to give you conditional statements. Like, if this continues to happen, then this is where you are heading. If you change your direction, then you'll, you'll be heading in a different direction and so on. And so I feel a lot more comfortable making those kinds of statements. And so that's why I keep saying, look, what we are doing right now is, 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 is not good in terms of our long run trajectory for all the reasons that I mentioned. And at the same time, you know, I feel confident saying that this is the direction in which we need to go. These are the kind of structural reforms we need to do. So I feel much more comfortable making those kinds of statements. Now, your question is fundamentally about me putting probabilities on the likelihood of those structural reforms happening. Now, that's a much more difficult question and, 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 and so on. I'll say a couple of things on that. The first one is, if, if I look at history, and I'm not a historian, so other people can judge better, but when I look at history, history is often very non-linear. And that gives me pause, first of all, in terms of trying to predict things too far. And I, at some level, that it makes me optimistic as well as pessimistic. It's just that, you know, it's hard to predict. Things can change very suddenly. What I do feel is, you know, one on the, on the positive side, on the more optimistic side, when these when the structural problems have these negative consequences, they naturally build pressure points. People may not fully understand why, but they need, they do understand things are not working. And they do understand things need to change. They may not know exactly how they need to change, but they do understand things need to change. And that's what I mean by the positive side, that there is, and you can see this both on the left and the right, you know, they might disagree on what needs to be done. But I think there's this growing pressure points. Now, it's, it's both optimistic and it's both pessimistic, right? Because you, what you don't know is what these pressure points result in. Do they result in kind of this, you know, free for all, what you were calling cultural wars and even worse uh, kind of wars? Or do they result in a change in status quo on the policy side? And we do, we, we get towards some deeper structural reforms like we did have at some point, like the New Deal and things like that. Um, so I, I personally find it very hard to give you my sort of probabilities on what those events are. I, I, I think both are possible, unfortunately. Uh, um, I can see both happening. I'm not, I don't know exactly which one will happen. What I do say is, okay, let's try to be positive. 
and let's try to talk about what we feel should happen. And to the extent you can make a contribution in changing those probabilities, I mean, those probabilities, by the way, are not given by, you know, it's we who determine those probabilities, right? And so to the extent um, we can talk about these issues in a reasonable, civilized manner and all of that, um, and to the extent we can sort of, you know, convince others of what we need to do, just like climate change, you would want to do that and so on. You know, that's my sort of positive take on that. It's like, okay, it's like, you know, um, whatever situation you're in, as I tell my children as well, just think about what is the best thing you can do. You know, don't lament on your situation too much and things of that nature. So let's try to talk about what we should be doing. And hopefully if enough of us think like that, uh, change is possible. Uh, Professor Mian, you mentioned uh, that you're not here to forecast. Uh, and uh, I, th there are some other charts that, that I'll try to show on the screen right now. In class, you uh, showed us some charts about the queen asking a room full of economists, why did nobody notice the, the 2008 financial crisis coming? And you showed us how economists from central banks, Wall Street, you know, all kinds of institutions systematically uh, are unable to predict this long-term de decline in long interest rate. They keep overestimating how high interest rates will go. They keep overestimating how high inflation will go. And there are some secular trends. So I guess we, we won't go into the certain details, the technicalities, but just seeing these charts and thinking about very broadly about economists' ability to forecast, <laughs> like are, are economists good at forecasting? Like are, are humans good at forecasting, especially under uncertainty? Yeah. Um, no, we are not. As the 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 chart. <laughs> the, the short answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And in, in in fact, even I mean, you can say this is unfair. You will always have difficulty in forecasting something, even if you are good on average. Um, but we, you know, certainly the economy. It's 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 very hard to uh, forecast to the extent people publish these forecasts. There's a long literature, and part of it suggests that ability of professionals to forecast is not much better than what you could do, just a robot kind of trying to forecast through some simple, you know, uh, vector auto regressions and things like that. Um, so no, we are not that uh, good at forecasting necessarily. However, for the picture that you are showing, what, what that picture suggests is that these forecasts have been missing some common persistent force that has been hitting the economy since the 1980 onwards, because that's when the forecast really uh, turned out to be, you know, uh, significantly worse um, for the future. And my candidate for what that force is is uh, uh, is again the, the the rising inequality and the implications of that. Uh, given again, the key thing is given the the primitive fact that the very rich who are getting richer, they don't tend to spend at the same rate. Uh, out of that increased income as everyone else, that would lead you to miss the forecast if you did not take that particular force into account. And so that's that's my interpretation of that. Um, again, I want to be cautious and say, you know, I'm, I like to think of myself as a, a man of uh, uh, science. Uh, uh, and, and I would say, look, I cannot prove it because that's a very difficult thing to do, but that would be my guess of why we have been missing this forecast is because people have underappreciated the impact of uh, inequality on 
on long run interest rate. I, I know we don't have too much time left, so maybe I'll ask you a, a couple quick questions about on the financial market side of things. We've been talking about this word financialization, and maybe I'll just ask you to explain that a little bit because what we saw, you, you tweeted this when when the GameStop saga was, the meme stock saga was happening a couple months ago. You were saying, you know, this is really some kind of, uh, a, 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 what's it called the, the symptom of a greater disease uh, the the you know a reflection of a greater symptom however you call this um that that is the greater financialization of the economy um. yeah um th there are different uh, ways to think about financialization obviously it's not a scientific term right so first of all people mean different things by this term financialization but one way, let's go back to, we have already had that conversation, right? We were talking about all of these reasons, these deeper structural reasons that are forcing interest rates to go lower and lower, um, number one. And I also explained why interest rates, especially long-term interest rates going all the way to zero or close to that raises asset valuations, right? Now in such, in fact, mathematically, if interest rates you don't have to go to zero, but mathematically, if they get close enough to zero, valuations actually become undefined. And so we, we just can't even talk about it. They become undefined and that you can even say infinity is a price, right? It makes no sense, but it's, a, you know, it's like in that sense becomes undefined. And that's the problem. That's, this is, we didn't have time to talk about it, but now you have given me an excuse to talk about it. This is yet another reason why very low interest rates are kind of, as I keep saying, this is no way to live. This is another reason this is no way to live because it leads to valuations that are kind of not really disciplined by anything material or real. And so in that world, there's a lot more you can start to justify, right? Uh, Bitcoin or whatever, Dogecoin or whatever, however it's pronounced. Uh, uh, Dogecoin, you know, yeah. <laughs> These um, all kinds of crazy stuff starts to happen. And yeah. GameStop is another, you know, a small minor uh, uh, example of that. But the basic point, the broader point is that um, at very low interest rates, you can sell anything. <laughs> That's another way of saying that, right? Because when values are more and more undefined, you can start selling anything. And you can say, look, okay, I promise you, some small probability of making a thousand dollars, but guess what? The value of that could be a lot, you know, it could be anything. And, and so um, you, you, you start going into a world where if you can really, you can make a lot of money if you can kind of defraud people for a short time period because valuations are very high. That's one way of thinking about it. So, the, so all kinds of perverse incentives start uh, to come out in, in that kind of a world. Um, and you start to see that, you know, you start to see people pitch businesses which are not doing anything real, but they are just kind of, you know, securitizing a bunch of stuff and selling it under a different name and so on. You, you start seeing a bunch of, that's again, another example of financialization. Um, you start, a lot. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you see that, maybe, maybe this has something to do with the kind of uh, YouTube searches I do, but so often I see YouTube ads about, you know, again, Bitcoins or, or some cryptocurrency and so on. And like, what is all of this adding to human welfare? Like, what are they doing at, at the back end? Uh, nothing, nothing really. Um, so these are all examples in my mind that you, they can happen in any point in time. But I think 
they are a lot more likely and they appear a lot more attractive in a world with very low interest rates. So this is yet another reason. I didn't focus on that, but this is, I think, also an important reason to say, look, we need structural change. If you keep on doing deficit financing to roll over this problem, yes, you can do that for a while, but then interest rates will remain very low, actually, right? And and that's that's uh, that's not a good uh, overall environment to be in. Again, I keep using that phrase. This is no way to live. That's you know, there, there's uh, all these concepts. They they, they relate to the same uh, the same point. What do you think about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin? And well, I I think the we probably have to uh, separate the speculative aspect, the investment aspect of, of it from the technology, because there are a lot of people who say the idea of decentralized finance, I don't know if you heard of this DeFi, this, you know, powered by blockchain, you know, Ethereum or, uh, you know, computer scientists building applications on this peer-to-peer transactions, no longer requiring central counterparties. It, it seems to be a very promising idea. I had lunch with uh, Tyler Cowen and Alex Taberik. Uh, who, who are two very pr- prominent uh, economists at, at George Mason University. And they're very bullish on this, you know, uh, digital currency yeah. in general, but also DeFi. And they, they think this is the future where, you know, this is a whole space being built out in front of people. And, and uh, they, they think a lot of people still refuse to acknowledge the, the technological breakthrough, the, the linear linearity of how yeah. um, this space could blow up. So what, what do you think about this space? Yeah. Um... Look, the first answer to this is if, if you think this is extremely useful, first you have to show a product that is actually useful, right? So let's let's stop talking in complete abstractions. I understand anything can be very useful, right? I mean, I can talk about string theory as potentially being very useful. Like people <laughs> think. But at some point you have to show something, right? Yeah. Like what is it like? solve a problem that was otherwise very difficult to solve with this problem. So, so I'm not disagreeing with the fact that it could in principle be useful. Yeah, sure. Uh, why not? Um, but I think, you know, the entrepreneurs need to come up with a product where that is. I haven't seen that yet, but maybe I, I don't, I don't disagree with the possibility that that might happen. That's, so that's one. Let me just say one thing on that. I, 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 uh, um, I am very, bullish or optimistic about one aspect of this, which is the possibility of what is called CBDC or central bank digital currency. Um, I think that has a lot of potential. It's very, it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And, and, um, and again, that will be a longer discussion and so on. Um, but just to give you an example of something that is broadly uh, thought to be in the same space, I think that can be extremely useful for example, it allows us to go back to this notion of narrow banking, which is something that people talked about, very important economists talked about in the aftermath of the Great Depression in what they refer to as the Chicago plan and things of that nature. So I think we now, after, so after, after almost 100 years, we now have the technology to actually be able to do something about those ideas. That I find very fascinating, right? So just to give you one example of where I think um, but it's not the standard crypto uh, thing. Um, um, moreover, understanding monetary uh, um, regimes is very important before you jump into the possibility of private currencies. I mean, at some broader level, I think the notion of privatizing currency is a terrible idea. I mean, just forget about which technology you do it through. 
the idea of privatizing currency actually is not a good idea. Actually, let me loop it back to the very beginning of this. Um, that's what I mean by you need to understand monetary economics to be able to kind of follow through the logic of this. But the reason privatizing currency is a terrible idea is that one very important consequence of having a public fiat currency of the kind we would have in modern times is that you can use currency to ensure risks across the population um, through easing monetary policy, through uh, you know, monetizing fiscal actions in, in times of extreme distress and so on. Um, this was a tremendous insight that came out of you know, a, a number of very uh, influential people working in this area. And so having monetary independence, having monetary authority, and then using it in combination with fiscal authority at times, uh, if nothing else, you know, Cinerage, the, the, the revenue potential of Cinerage, obviously you need to do it properly with discipline. We understand the limits, right? But it's a very useful public tool to have and in the extreme, I think the idea that it's okay if you give it up through some notion of decentralized private currencies is just nonsense. I think those in individuals don't know anything of what they are talking about. Uh, there is a reason, just to give you one last example on that, there is a reason no economist of any repute would speak in favor of the gold standard. The, the I mean, hard money, you, commodity money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can think yeah. of that as kind of Bitcoin on steroids, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, 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 so again, I think we need to be very careful when we put these ideas out there. Um, just to say one last thing on Bitcoin is just so silly. It's just so easy to put it out. I mean, you know, it's using, <laughs> tremendous, it's using tremendous amounts of energy. Yeah. And the only real use of it is for criminals to, you know, uh, demand ransom <laughs> and if we are you know wasting so much energy for that one use really that's the real practice speaking of practical usages right that's the one i've seen what else can bitcoin really be used for so it's really it's it's very sad actually that you know from ellen musk to kathy woods and others it's it's really sad that people in the public domain have spoken positively about something that is so silly and potentially destructive. It, it says something about the financial sector overall, I think. I mean, I think there needs to be some level of seriousness about you know, where we are heading and what is the point of some of this stuff that is thrown out there. Um, I, I just think that you know, for all those reasons, I, mean, I think it's important that we think about, again, all of these questions from the perspective of the overall common public welfare. It's very important to keep that focus in mind. Otherwise you can just get swayed by, you know, sort of silly arguments at times. You have to say, okay, what are you trying to accomplish here? What problem are you trying to solve? You must be able to at least identify some real problem that some new technology is able to address. Otherwise it's just, you know, another Ponzi scheme or something even worse. Professor Mian, this is all very fascinating. And I think um, just to gradually tie the the conversation back to uh, the beginning and, and also combining this discussion uh, about financial markets. Do, do you think finance practitioners and, and market participants sometimes may have a more uh, nuanced and realistic understanding of finance than academics and policymakers or vice versa? Uh, so 
because a lot of people might say, oh, a lot of the stuff coming out of finance, academia, efficient market hypothesis, Black Scholes equations, uh, they don't actually work when, when practitioners use them and, and, and vice versa. So how, because you very much sit at this, you know, center, Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance, which is policymakers and academics and investors. So how, how do you bridge those perspectives together? Yeah, um, first of all, I, react very negatively to any attempt to stereotype people, right? So Absolutely, it's, yes. if, if anyone says, look, the academics are all a bunch of, are just yeah, rubbish. Yeah, yeah. Anyone says, look, these uh, people in the financial markets, they're all rubbish. You know, it's for whatever reason, obviously that's wrong. Um, yeah. I think all of us have our own comparative advantages and people, everyone can bring important insights to the table and everyone has their own core set of uh, comparative advantages. Um, I think people in the financial markets, they are very good at understanding the institutional limits of certain conceptual arguments. So take efficient market hypothesis as, a, uh, as an example. Uh, the very simplest form of efficient market hypothesis will take the idea of price discovery as given. You know, yeah, the markets just, the wisdom of the crowds figures out what the right price of something should be. But a market participant understands you cannot take that as given that the whole idea of price discovery, you need to know the market microstructure of who can trade with whom and what are the costs of not uh, figuring out what the right price is. Can you bear that cost or not? This whole thing that you can just kind of, with the swing of a pen, you can assume it away basically, right? Uh, by just assuming rational expectations, for example. Um, so I think that's where connecting with the real institution players, you know, just giving you an example of that is very important. And I love talking to real players exactly for that reason. It's like, I, I want them to, I think the most important insights they convey you is every theory in any scientific discipline for that matter is based on certain premises, certain assumptions. That's just the nature of everything we do. You have to build stuff on certain uh, normative assumptions and so on. Um, the real world people are very good at telling you how, and you, so you want those assumptions and premises to be, uh, to be realistic, right? That's very important. Otherwise you're just talking about some fantasy world that doesn't exist. So it's very important to talk to people, uh, in the real world. Um, for example, if you're modeling the financial markets, it's very important to understand, um, to what extent, uh, your assumptions are realistic. Um, on the other side, I think places where academia is super helpful, uh, and I think people, market participants often miss that, is exactly what I was starting off with, is what fascinates me about economics, is that we, in the academic discipline, we have developed a set of tools that allow us to analyze the system as a whole. So all of this conversation about general equilibrium feedback effects, for example. So if you go back to the conversation we had about how inequality can lead to rise in debt and falling interest rates and everything else connected to it. Um, as far as I know, I mean, you have to be an economist really to be able to say all of this coherently and then sort of, you know, put data around it and so on and so forth, right? Um, it's hard to imagine a, an individual financial participant investing all the time and effort to study that, uh, you know, partly because you, you're not going to get any immediate financial gains out of doing that. But these are still very important social questions. So I think there are natural ways in which we can complement each other in the from the market to the to academia and vice versa. And then obviously policy sits 
somewhere in between, right? Because they, they need to, to, to do so. So that's the that's the um, that, that's the way I like to think of it. It's a team sport. Uh, we all have our roles to play, and I think we should all try to play our roles constructively. Uh, by the way, how, how do you view the, your uh, relationship with Pakistan uh, at the moment? Do, do you still interact with them a lot? Because I know that's your home country, and you were previously appointed to the Pakistani uh, Economic Advisory Council, but then um, unfortunately that didn't go through because of you know religious you know reasons. You, you're the only economist I feel like when I, by the way, uh, uh, when I go on Twitter, <laughs> like after every tweet, there's like a bunch of hate comments. <laughs> it's like the only economist <laughs> that has that. But yeah, we, we can talk a little bit more about that part, so. Well, I, 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 you know, as, as you said, it's a very unique position to be to be in. Um, it's unfortunate, uh, as you said. I, I, I am from Pakistan, and um, and I, I deeply care about uh, the country and, and and the people who live there. I, I wish I could uh, I could do something uh, that could be of use uh, to the country on 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 the policy side and so on. Um, but for the reasons you mentioned, it's not possible for me to do that uh, at all. Um, because of your your certain religious, religious reasons. So uh, 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 you know, um, um, my uh, sort of religious affiliation is um, um, discriminated against in 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 various ways. Um, there's been a long history of uh, propaganda of sorts. And as you can imagine, so you get a very uh, strong at times negative social reaction from a certain, not everyone obviously, but from a certain um, segment of the population, which uh, sometimes spills over on social media. And that's what you're referring to in terms of the reply tweets and so on. Um, it's a it's a unique position to be in, as you said, uh, relatively, uh, uh, um, in, in, in academics, um, it's not a fun position to be in for sure, but you know, you try to learn from everything in life um, and, 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 and move on. Um, what exactly is, is, the, help, is the faith? Yeah, sorry? What, what exactly is your, is your faith, the, the, the part that is being discriminated against, if you, if you don't mind telling us a, a little bit about it? It's called the, uh, the, the Ahmadiyya uh, Muslim community. Uh, but it's uh, yeah, that's uh, but, but you know it's it's uh, it's it's persecuted at various levels, including um, uh, through the legal uh, system, um, and so that makes it very difficult for me. Um, even though I'm just an economist, you know, I don't, you know, I don't whatever um, highlight my religious. Yeah, I think I you know I I I feel personal beliefs should be kind of separate from any. Um, yes economic conversation um, or other conversation for that matter. But unfortunately, that's not the, the reality on the ground. And so um, as a result of that, I, I, I cannot engage in the, in the policy uh, conversations there. What, what are some of the questions on your mind these days? Just your, your current research agenda, some of the plans going forward. Do you have a five-year plan, 10-year plan? What are some of the goals you set for yourself? Um, yeah, I, um, as I said, I really feel that this 
issue of uh, inequality is front and center and its policy consequences. So everything that we talked about over the last couple of hours, um, I'm very, very passionate about that. I think those have very important policy uh, implications. So I do uh, like to write about it. I do like to talk about it um, in uh, every chance I get, including this current session. Um, and so there's a lot more to do in terms of research that I'm currently involved in. I'm very excited about that. I think it'll take uh, at least uh, the next few years to, 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 to sort of uh, finish that work. And as is always the case, life is full of interesting questions. I'm sure something else will come up. Um, but I do feel the question of balance in the economy is a fundamental question that we need to think about. Um, I think we have a serious collective problem uh, at hand uh, that needs to be addressed collectively, which is uh, the one the, the problem of uh, extreme inequality on one hand and the and, and, and the challenge of inclusive growth and prosperity. I mean, I think it's very important to uh, live in a society. And I think we now are in, at a unique point in history where that is possible, where, you know, every child who is born wherever of whatever background, nationality, religion, or whatever it uh, might be, that every child has a relatively similar set of opportunities to thrive, to grow, to enjoy life. And, 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 and that's a wonderful thing to have. I think we, you know, we, we, we I think we absolutely have, you know, if you think of like, we absolutely have enough food to feed everyone. We absolutely have enough sort of uh, uh, capacity to provide healthcare to everyone and so on. Um, but we are not doing it, right? And, and that is our collective failure in terms of the structures we put in place, in terms of the systems of government, uh, the financial systems that we run and so on. So I feel that is like, you know, that's a very important challenge. Um, and this was one of the reasons, I, as I said in the very beginning, this was one of the reasons I uh, wanted to become an economist is to be exactly to be able to, as I said, you know, it's the social questions that, that interested me. Uh, so I think these are uh, very important questions. And I think we have, by when I say we, I mean, you know, economists, I think we do have some important things to say on that in terms of how we can make our collective state uh, better, more appealing um, along all these margins. Um, and so that's what excites me. Uh, you know, I want to talk about it. I want to communicate that um, to the extent I can. And, uh, but that's it, you know, I'm just, um, as I often say, I'm just a nerdy academic at the end of the day. I'm, I don't have any power. I'm not interested in power. Um, that's not my comparative advantage, but I, I, I hope to be able to communicate the ideas and then those who do have power, those who do have, you know, political stakes, uh, that it's, you know, hopefully uh, they can come together and, and, and solve some of our um, um, deeper problems. Uh, is there ever a moment when you wish you were a policymaker, were a billionaire, were someone with power? Uh, so so let, let me put it this way, in an alternative, you know, in, in the case of unobserved counterfactual, who would Atif Mian be? What, what would you do? Well, no, I'm, I'm very, I'm very fortunate in that respect. <laughs> I, there has never been a moment in my life. I think I can say that honestly. There, there has never been a single moment in my life where I wanted to be a politician, where I wanted <laughs> to be someone powerful. Uh, certainly, where I wanted to be a billionaire. I don't know what I will do with that. Those days. Um, so I think I feel very fortunate, really, that I'm doing what I'm doing um, and having the freedom to do. I think this is just. For the, for the younger people listening out there, 
who are thinking of careers, I think this is what I love about being in academia. I mean, I absolutely love being in academia because it gives you the flexibility or freedom to kind of ask the questions that interest you. It's a very unique, I mean, if you think of it that way, you know, everywhere else you go, someone puts a bunch of files on your table and says, do this. You know, it's like, this is your job. I don't care what you think, do, do what I'm telling you to do, right? That's the nature of what a job means. Or even if you're running a business, the nature of it is that, you know, you're, you're trying to convince someone to buy your product or service and so on and so forth. Um, but here you pick the questions that you're interested in and then you're not in any other market. The only market you're in is the market for ideas. And for me, that's fascinating. I mean, I think that's the, that's the way to say about it that, you know, the, the, having the freedom to ask your own questions and then uh, engaging in no other market, but the market for ideas. I mean, that's just a fascinating world to be able to live in. Um, you know, the, the, the opportunity to talk to young people like yourself, um, you know, I keep getting older, unfortunately, so there's nothing I can do about that. But what I can do is I can, you know, stay connected with the younger people who keep coming through the universities and so on. Um, and that to me, and you know, it's, it's one of those things that you realize more and more as you grow older is just the value of that. It's just the value to be able to talk to young people and so on because they always have interesting thoughts ideas and so on i don't think of it more as i'm teaching anything but it's more really it's like learning from that experience uh, it's like oh yeah i never thought of it like that you know this is an interesting question things of that nature uh, but then also equally importantly learning from young scholars you might notice i'm you know i try to work with a lot of young people as well it's like it's because you know again they they bring in a level of energy that um, is, 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 is just tremendous. And so again, for all those reasons, I think I, I, I very fortunate to do what I'm doing. And I really, uh, one honest answer is I don't think there's anything else I can actually do. I mean, I don't think I can hold a job. Uh, <laughs> I had to, so even more, perhaps more realistic reasons that if I try to do anything else, I'll fail at it miserably. <laughs> uh, Professor Mia, I, I just want to say, I'm very grateful for, for your, mentorship and I, I keep learning from your own humility I, I you probably don't remember this but so last fall I, I still remember when I uh, went into the Rhodes Scholarship finalist and I didn't actually win the scholarship after the the committee interview and and you wrote the words to me you I, I don't mean to disclose your email to, to the world but you did say um, thanks for letting me know Tiger and congrats to getting to the finals all such all such things in life have a lot of noise uh, so don't take the outcome to me anything especially given you reach the end. Uh, the most important aspect of success is to keep your head down and keep pushing in a consistent way, working on the big questions, you'll get to the promised lands. And I just remember reading those words, feeling incredibly uh, uh, encouraged. I, I, I have to say, I almost cried when I read those words. I mean, this was, those were just so beautifully written. And uh, uh, I, I just wanna say, it's just been an amazing experience uh, being your advisee this past year, writing my senior thesis under you. I, I mean, every meeting we have, it's uh, you're pushing me in, in a new direction, pushing me harder and harder uh, to test my own limit, my own potential. So uh, I, I just have to say, I, I keep learning from you because you, you think about the, the world's best economists, you think about them as uh, they don't have time to respond to emails, they don't have time to talk to you, they have no time for uh, actually get in touch with you. Um, but, but to learn from you, uh, it's just uh, incredible. A privilege of mine during my Princeton years. So, so thank you so much. So, 
Thanks, Tiger. This is uh, this is very generous, uh, but thank you. So at the end uh, of our show, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I've asked this question, you know, like 150 times by this point, but uh, still hits home when I ask you this. What, what would the punchline be uh, for you uh, as you conclude this interview? I think I've been saying the punchline throughout in different ways. Um, we are all in this together. I think that's the punchline. Um, we are all in this together and um, we need to think of our collective common good. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun to actually build stuff that benefits everyone. And I think if all of us try to do that a little bit to the extent possible in our lives, um, we can all have much better futures. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Mian. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And uh, well, I, I certainly encourage our listeners to go buy your book, House of Debt. I know most people in the economics community have read, read about it, certainly. But uh, in case some of our listeners haven't gotten this book, it's really a timeless topic that they could read into and uh, follow you on Twitter and, uh, and, and keep learning about these uh, topics. So thank you so much uh, for joining me again, uh, Professor Mian. Thanks, Tiger. Thanks. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, read and review us. You can watch this uh, full video on our YouTube channel, and you may see some of the slides that Professor Mian and I presented uh, on, on the video. That was probably a better experience than just listening to the audio. Um, you can follow Professor Mian at Atif R. Mian on Twitter. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for listening today, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.